This is the Mystery History Podcast. I am Jordan, and welcome to episode 58, Arnie Johnson. So I figured this was a good time to do this this one with all the uh, hype around the movie. Um, it's an interesting one, and I probably a lot of people would know about it now because of the movie. But before that, I feel like not a lot of people know about it. We touched on it a little bit whenever we did our... Uh, Ed and Lorraine Warren podcast, but we didn't go, really go into the details, so I'm going to do that today. It's pretty interesting, all the things that happen. Um, obviously, they made a movie about it, but yeah, we're going to go a little deeper into it. Uh, but before that, I just wanted to say thank you to everybody that's been listening. We are at almost at 36,000 listeners, which is amazing. Um, yeah, and it's just mind-blowing. So thank you to everyone who's been listening, sharing. Um, If you haven't, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. That helps out a lot. Uh, Subscribe to um, the podcast there or on Spotify. Um, Follow our Instagram, which is Mr. History Podcast. And we also have a Facebook page, but we're not as active on there as we should be probably. Um, But yeah, we post all of our, make uh, episode art for all of our episodes on Instagram. So. Have a good time doing that. So go check those out. Um, we also have a website, mysteryhistorypodcast.com. We have a backlog of all of our episodes. We have some merch on there if you're interested in that. And we also have a Patreon that's available on the website also. It's patreon.com slash mysteryhistorypodcast. Um, we're going to start doing some more exclusive stuff on there, having polls of episodes you guys would want to hear, um, stuff like that. So if you're interested, go check that out. And then lastly, we have a Discord, which we started a few months ago, but with all the uh, the craziness that's been going on, we really haven't been keeping up with it, but we're going to start getting back into that, where we can have discussions with people. Um, we like it because people that listen to the podcast can talk to each other. It's not just us talking to people that listen. I think it's kind of cool to have a community around it. So if you're interested in that, um, there's a link on the website. I believe it's still active. If not, I will update it today so that it is active. And yeah, you can go check that out and get into discussions. So pretty cool stuff. All right, so let's get into the case. The trial of Arnie Cheyenne Johnson, also known as the Devil Made Me Do It case, is the first known court case in the United States in which the defense sought to prove innocence based upon the defendant's claim of demonic possession and denial of personal responsibility for the crime. On November 24, 1981, in Brookfield, Connecticut, Arnie Cheyenne Johnson was convicted of first-degree manslaughter for the killing of his landlord, Alan Bono. According to the testimony by the Glatzel family, 11-year-old David Glatzel had played host to a demon after witnessing a number of increasingly ominous occurrences involving David. The family, exhausted and terrified, decided to enlist the aid of Ed and Lorraine Warren in a last-ditch effort to cure David. The Glatzel family, along with the Warrens, then proceeded to have multiple priests petition the church to have a formal exorcism performed on David. The process continued for several days, concluding when, 
According to those present, a demon fled the child's body and took up residence within Arnie. These events were documented in the book The Devil in Connecticut by Gerald Brittle. Arnie Johnson and Debbie Glatzel provided firsthand accounts for the version of the events depicted in Discovery Channel's A Haunting episode, Where Demons Dwell. They did not believe in demonic activities themselves, but they claimed their father to be an eyewitness to demonic possession. Both Johnson and Debbie were adamant in their support of, of the Warrens' recollection of events. They asserted that paranormal activity began after they went to clean up a rental property they had just acquired. David recollected that an old man appeared, uh, pushing and terrifying him. The couple initially thought that David was using the old man as an excuse to avoid cleaning, but David informed them that the old man had vowed to harm the Glatzels if they moved into the rental home. That's always a good thing you want to hear whenever you're moving in somewhere. Um, David's visions of the old man included the man appearing as a demonic beast who muttered Latin and threatened to steal his soul. So yeah, all good things going on here. Although the family allegedly heard strange noises coming from the attic, no one but David ever witnessed the old man. After David experienced night terrors, exhibited strange behavior, and obtained unexplained scratches and bruises, the family called upon the services of a Catholic priest who attempted to bless the house. The terrified family concluded that the house was evil and would no longer continue to rent it. Yeah, I think that's a good move. David's visions worsened, occurring in the daytime as well. Twelve days after the original incident, the family summoned the self-proclaimed demonologist Ed and Lorraine Warren to assist. Lorraine allegedly witnessed a black mist materialize next to David, an apparent indication of a malevolent presence. Debbie and her mother told the Warrens that they have seen David being beaten and choked by invisible hands and that red marks had appeared on his neck afterward. David started to growl, hiss, speak in otherworldly voices and recite passages from the Bible or Paradise Lost. The Glatzels recounted how each night a family member would remain awake with David as he suffered through spasms and convulsions. After receiving a prognosis of multiple possessions from the Warrens, David was suggested, subjected to three lesser exorcisms. Lorraine asserts that David levitated, ceased breathing for a time, and even demonstrated the supernatural ability of precognition, specifically in relation to the manslaughter Johnson would later commit. In October 1980, the Warrens contacted Brookfield police to warn them that the situation was becoming dangerous. According to an eyewitness testimony, Arnie Johnson coerced one of the demons that was reportedly within Demon to possess him while participating in David's exorcism. It is here that a haunting veers away from the circumstances of Johnson's possession as described by those involved. According to the show, a few days after, Johnson egged the demon on during the exorcism. He was attacked rather viciously by the demon, which allegedly took control of his car and forced it into a tree. Fortunately, Johnson was unharmed. After this incident, Johnson returned to the rental property to examine the old well that was supposedly housed the demon. In both the dramatized version and his personal account, Johnson recollects that this was the final encounter with the demon while completely lucid. After encountering the demon at the well and making eye contact with it, he became possessed. The Warrens claim to have warned him not to do this, although their warning was not mentioned in the haunting episode. As David's condition worsened further, Debbie and Johnson, who had been living in her mother's home, decided it was time to move. Debbie was hired by Alan Bono, a new resident in Brookfield, as a dog groomer. 
Debbie and Johnson began renting an apartment close to her place of employment. After moving in, Johnson started to exhibit odd behavior that was strikingly similar to David's, causing Debbie to fear that he had become possessed as well. According to Debbie, Johnson would fall into a trance-like state wherein he would growl and hallucinate, but later have no memory of it. On February 16, 1981, Johnson called in sick to his job at Wright Tree Service and joined Debbie at the kennel where she worked, along with her sister Wanda and Debbie's nine-year-old cousin Mary. Bono, the couple's landlord and Debbie's employer at the kennel, bought the group lunch at a local bar and proceeded to drink heavily. After lunch, the group returned to the kennel. Debbie then took the girls to get pizza, but instead returned quickly, anticipating trouble. When they returned, Bono was very intoxicated at this point and became agitated. Everyone left the room at Debbie's urging, except Bono, who seized Mary and refused to let go. Johnson headed back to the apartment and ordered Bono to release Mary. Wander recounted the following events to the police. Mary ran for the car as Debbie attempted to mitigate the situation by standing between the two men. Wanda tried in vain to pull Johnson away. Johnson, growling like an animal, then drew a five-inch pocket knife and stabbed Bono repeatedly. Bono died several hours later. According to Johnson's lawyer, Bono had suffered four or five tremendous wounds, mostly to his chest, and one that stretched from his stomach to the base of his heart. Johnson was discovered two miles from the site of the killing and was held at the Bridgeport Correctional Center on bail of $125,000. This was the first murder in the history of Brookfield, Connecticut. Eight months later, Arnie's case finally went to trial. On October 28, 1981, at Connecticut's Superior Court in Danbury, his attorney, 33-year-old Martin Manila, told the Post ahead of the trial that he believed Bono's stab wounds were far too deep to have been done by human hands. He also told the paper that the potential for a demonic possession defense was introduced by the warrants. I didn't come up with this, Manila said. This was presented to me. I went to see Ed and Lorraine, and I decided to take the case on after talking to them. They told me that when you're possessed, you have no control over your actions. That stuck in my mind. Manila told people that he traveled to England ahead of the case, seeking precedent by consulting the lawyers who had handled the two alleged demonic possession cases there. Those two did not go to trial, however. He also planned to bring exorcism specialists from Europe into the courtroom to testify, and spoke of subpoenas for local priests who refused to testify. He also mentioned to the Post ahead of the trial that top movie studios were interested in the case. Lorraine Warren confirmed this with the Post reporter. Ahead of the trial, Manila also said that as part of his defense, he planned to bring a religion directly into the courtroom. The courts have dealt with the existence of God, and now they'll be asked to deal with the existence of the demonic spirit. Judge Robert Callahan, who presided over the jury trial, was swift to reject the demonic possession defense. Allowing such testimony in the court would be irrelative and unscientific, he said. The court will take judicial notice that the profession, the business, or the hobby of locating demons has not risen to that of viability where it should be an assistance to the jury in the deciding case, he said. Instead, Manila implied self-defense at the trial, which lasted about three weeks. Jurors never heard a word about demonic possession or Johnson's mid-exorcism demand, that the entity inhabiting David take him instead. On November 24th, after the jury deliberated for 15 hours over three days, Johnson was convicted of first-degree manslaughter. He was sentenced to 10 to 20 years in prison. A model inmate, he was released five years later. Johnson and Debbie Glatzel, who married in 1984 while he was imprisoned, maintained their account of what happened in Brookfield. 
with David, the circumstances of Bono's murder and Johnson's demonic possession being all true. Upon his release from prison, Johnson showed no signs of possession. According to the Warrens, who spoke with the Associated Press in 1986, Ed Warren told AP that possession does not last 24 hours a day. It comes quickly and leaves quickly. Lorraine Warren, who died in 2019, maintained it was all real too. She had recounted her version of the events for her 1983 book, The Devil in Connecticut, by Gerald Brittle. After its publication, she reportedly sent $2,000 in profits from the book to the Glatzel family. However, in 2007, Debbie's older brother, Carl Glatzel, claimed in a legal filing that most of the incidents described in the book are complete lies and that his family was manipulated and exploited by the Warrens. The paranormal investigators were opportunists who had turned his little brother's undiagnosed schizophrenia, which he said caused David to experience hallucinations and delusions from 1979 through 1982, into a media frenzy that fueled their fame and profits, but led them to lose relationships and business opportunities. Lorraine Warren, who was newly widowed, said in 2007 that such accusations that she and her husband would go as far as to manipulate a family for profit were, in quotes, upsetting. You can't imagine something that you've done that nobody could poke holes in and have something come out by somebody who knows nothing about what they're doing, she said. Back in 1981, as the murder trial of his big sister's trusted fiancé was approaching, David Glatzel was just entering sixth grade. The reporter for, the, for People described him as clouded and grim at the time, and reported that at this point in his childhood, his attacks and fits were less frequent. At times, he would still have to sleep with the light on. David was a good kid. He never bothered anybody, Carl Glatzel said in 2007. He lived in a living hell because of all the negative attention. The incident led to a creation of a television film titled The Demon Murder Case on NBC and preparations for a feature film, that production of which was stalled due to internal conflicts. In 1983, Gerald Brittle, with the assistance of Lorraine Warren, published a book about the incident entitled The Devil in Connecticut. Lorraine Warren stated that the profits from the book were shared with the family. Sources confirmed that $2,000 was paid to the family by the book publisher. Upon the book's republication in 2006 by iUniverse, David Glatzel and his brother Carl Glatzel Jr. sued the authors and the book publishers by violating their right to privacy, libel, and intentional affliction of emotional distress. Carl also claimed that the book alleged that he committed criminal and abusive acts against his family and others. He said that the possession story was a hoax concocted by Ed and Lorraine to exploit the family and his brother's mental illness, and that the book presented him as a villain because he did not believe in the supernatural claims. He asserted that the Warrens also told the story, uh, or told him that the story would make the family millions and help get Johnson out of jail. According to Carl Glatzel, the publicity generated by the incident forced him to drop out of school and lose friends and business opportunities. In 2007, he began writing a book titled Alone Through the Valley about his version of the events that surrounded his brother. Lorraine defended her work with the family, saying that the six priests who were involved in the incident agreed that at the time the boy was possessed and that the supernatural events she described were real. Brittle, who was the author of The Devil in Connecticut, says he wrote the book because the family wanted their story told that he possesses video of over 100 hours of his interviews with the family, and that they signed off on the book as accurate before it went to print. Glatzel's father, Carl Glatzel Sr., 
denies telling the author that his son was possessed. Johnson and Debbie, now married, wholeheartedly support the Warrens' account of their monarch's possession and have stated that the Glatzels in question are suing simply for monetary purposes. The event inspired the premise of the 2021 film, The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It. So what I'm going to play now is audio that was recorded during David Glatzel's possession. Um, so it can be disturbing to some people. So if you don't want to hear it, skip ahead about a minute and 30 seconds, and that, that'll get you past all of it. So this would have been the demon that jumped from David's body to Arnie's body, which then supposedly made him kill Alan Bono. So here is that audio of David Glatzel's possession. David, I'm going to name of Jesus, you. Jesus, we pray with you. Leave this child alone. It's time you have your head. Yes, no, but you are not strong. You're weak. You're, you're weak. 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 you So yeah, that's pretty freaking terrifying. Uh, yeah. So let me. Do you think he was possessed? This it's hard to tell. Whenever I don't know, it is like a movie, and it is a book, and it's probably very dramatized. But I mean, the fact that I don't know, it's hard. The fact that Arnie Johnson, who's the one who went to jail for killing a guy, says that yeah. It was possession. I feel like that says a lot because the guy went to jail for five years over it. I don't know. It just, it's just, it's hard to tell whenever there's money involved. Because like he said, it's probably, they're probably just suing. They probably wanted money from the book and they didn't get all the money they wanted. So now their lives have been ruined over it because everybody thinks they're crazy people. So now they want more money because it didn't turn out the way they wanted in the first place. So it's hard to tell, but there are a lot of, I love the Conjuring movies and all the, uh, the reading about the Warrens and stuff, but as the deeper you dig into their stuff, there's a lot of people that discredit them and say a lot of the stuff they did wasn't true. And it was just, they wanted to be famous, but I don't know. There's two sides of that coin. So it's hard to, you really have to do your own research and make up your mind for yourself, which side of that fence you fall on, but it's interesting nonetheless, because I mean, this was a court case. It's crazy that, I don't know, it's this, somebody went to court just basically saying, 
it's pretty much pleading insanity, saying you didn't have control over your own body. But I mean, it's it's weird that he did that. It might have just been a fit of rage. Like everybody said, he was so such a nice guy, and then after he left jail he, or prison, he was no, he was just a normal guy again. So it seems kind of fishy that he was possessed and then all of a sudden he was fine. So he's probably just trying to protect his girlfriend, the soon-to-be wife, that, and then he just went too far, probably. I mean, the guy was probably threatening him, threatening the girl like crazy if he was drunk and holding on to her and stuff. It's, I don't know. you got to protect people, but he probably, I don't know. The fact that he says that it's possession is the crazy part. So that's the only thing that keeps me thinking that it could be true. Because you think, I don't know, I feel like that would come with negative connotations. Like if you, you wouldn't just go around saying you're possessed because then people would be like, okay, guy. But I mean, the fact that there's a bunch of uh, witnesses and stuff like that so it goes a long way too. It's hard whenever, you don't know how close their family is either, it's, it's hard whenever the family is like one part of the family says one thing and the other part says another thing. But it's definitely an interesting case. Um, this is a shorter one as there's that's all the information really about the case. Everything I just told you. They did say that David, the Warren said this. So again, take it with a grain of salt, said that there are 43 demons inside of David. So that sucks. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, there's a bunch. I mean, not a bunch more, but you can do your own research on this. There's some other interesting details that I didn't include just because I didn't see them very relevant. But there's a lot of a lot of stuff out there about this. So you can do your own research. Um, I just thought I'd touch a little bit more on the court case because the movie was great, but it didn't really... It just kind of... It did all the events... I don't know. That's why those Conjuring movies are kind of weird because it kind of... They just, in the beginning, they talk, if you haven't seen a spoiler alert, but they talk about the case, and then they kind of just go off into, they focus on Ed and Lorraine Warren for like 99% of the movie, and at the end, they go back to Arnie Johnson, and they're like, oh yeah, he went to jail. So it's kind of weird. I don't know. I don't really like, I wish they focused more on like actual events. That's just my take. I don't know. Yeah. But that's my rant. Rant over. Um, yeah. So let me know what you guys thought of the movie, what you guys thought of this episode, whether you think he was possessed. Yeah. So just leave that as a comment on our Instagram under this episode title and we'll start some discussions, start talking about it. It's one of those where you can, I feel like there's two camps of people that either I'm on the fence, but I feel like the majority of people will either be the way this way or way the other way where they think it's bullshit or they think it's, he was really possessed. I, it's hard. I would think it's bullshit. The only thing that keeps me hanging on is Johnson saying, yeah, he was possessed and his wife who was there with him when it happened and saying, yeah, he was possessed. It wasn't him. So definitely an interesting one, but, uh, thank you for listening and we will talk to you next week. Bye.